Father, as we're singing, a, an image came into my mind. What's the most, what's the most important thing? Lord, we're underwater. Underwater, the most important thing is to breathe. Yet there is no air around us. But you come to us. You create for us air to breathe, life to live. We could not be more grateful. We look forward to the day when we'll see the flashing lightning and the rolling thunder. When we see the Lion of Judah and we turn and look and there's the Lamb that was slain for us. Our gratitude will not be measured. Lord, as we look into your word today, may we carry this spirit of worship with us throughout our time. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So when uh, Barbara and I go on long trips, she's been on a couple of long trips in the last two months. She's currently in Sacramento watching. I don't know who else is with her, but, uh, but she's online there. One thing that we never forget is to bring Ray Stevens' music. Now, he's a singer, he's a songwriter, he's a humorist. And for those of you who may not be familiar with his name, perhaps you've heard some of the creatively funny songs that he's written. Uh, one is Dr. Doctor, which is hilarious. Uh, the Mississippi Squirrel Revival, another. And, uh, but he can also be a serious musician. As an 18-year-old in 1957, he started out with the ballad, uh, The Silver Bla- Bracelet. I recommend that you, if you get a chance to listen to that, and you only know Ray Stevens in one way, you'll hear him in an entirely different way. Later, he won a Grammy Award for his song, Everything is Beautiful. Uh, which sold three million copies and was on the record charts at number one for over two weeks. And if you listen to Christian radio, at some point or another, you've heard, turn your radio on. You know, come on and listen to a radio station where the mighty host of heaven sings. But my favorite Ray Stevens song of all time is I'm my own grandpa. So I'm actually going to read the lyrics to you. Many, many years ago, when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as can be. This widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon they two were wed. (laughs) This made my dad my son-in-law and really changed my life. My, my, My daughter was my mother, because she was my father's wife. 
And to complicate the matter, even though it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little brother, I mean my little baby, then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle. Though it made me very sad, for if he were my uncle, that also made him brother of the widow's grown-up daughter, who was, of course, my stepmother. My father's wife then had a son who kept them on the run, and he became my grandchild, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me blue, because although she is my wife, she's my grandmother too. Now, if my wife is my grandmother, and I am her grandchild, yeah, every time I think of it, it nearly drives me wild, because now it become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. <laughs> It sounds funny, I know, but it really is so. I'm my own grandpa. Now, while the Habsburg dynasty, if you know history, of Austria could compete with Stephen's song, Nero was not too far off either. I mean, the Romans knew they, the physical and mental dangers of marrying too close for too long. But there's nothing like wealth and power to keep this, uh, you know, from moving on. So that was more critical than those things. Nero, in fact, was the son of a niece and her uncle, uh, Agrippina, and Claudius, who were also inbred. In fact, Nero was Mark Antony's great-great-grandson, on his father's side, and great-great-great-grandson on his mother's side. Julius Caesar was his great-great-grandfather by law. There's some connection there as well, though. Uh, But he was his great-great-great-grandfather on his mother's side, and so it goes. And many scholars believe that inbreeding is what caused Nero's insanity. So why do we care? Why do we care that Nero slept with his mother and then had her murdered? Why do we care that he married his stepsister and then he had her killed? Why do we care that he freed his male servant and then married him? Why do we care? I mean, Nero was without a doubt among the most debauched, you don't hear that word too often, comes from Bacchus, debauched the wicked and depraved human beings who ever lived on the face of the planet. In fact, his mother, Agrippina, said to Claudius before they had Nero, nothing good can come from us having a child. I literally, from the pulpit and even in private, cannot tell you what he did. His actions were so heinous and evil, they defy description. The question remains, why am I talking about him? Why am I talking about his family? Why am I talking about his deeds? A little background. In the writing to Timothy, Paul was communicating during the last years of his life. In fact, 1 Timothy, he wrote in 64 A.D., 2 Timothy in 66, and he 
likely died in 67. So he's in the last years of his life. And these are words spoken to Timothy that are to be treasured and to be held dearly. They're words that were born of the totality of the Apostle Paul's life and his experience and his pain. And in Paul's estimation, these words were those that Timothy needed to know for the church to prosper. So if you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, Paul writes, First of all, of first importance, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So as I mentioned, 1 Timothy was written in 64 A.D. Those of you who are able to connect Nero in 64 A.D. may have already realized what happened in 64 A.D. It was the burning of Rome. And Nero blamed the Christians. So it is just here that you would expect for the Apostle Paul to produce an imprecatory psalm of David. Lord, bash them against the rocks. Destroy them, O Lord. Pour out your wrath on them. Uh, Psalm 79 and some others. If you don't know what an imprecatory psalm is, you should look that up. Some of them are are very interesting to read. Or you might expect at least, at a minimum, from the opening uh, scene of Fiddler on the Roof, where the rabbi's son asks his father, the rabbi, is, is there a proper blessing for the czar? And the rabbi responded, the blessing for the czar? Of course. May God bless the czar and keep him Far away from us. That is not what Paul writes. This, this, this staggers me. Paul says that we're to pray for them. We're to pray for kings. We're to pray for rulers. The burning of Rome triggered unimaginable persecutions against believers. 
not only were they severely restricted, but they were publicly and cruelly executed. I'm not going to tell you how, but I will say what Tacitus in his work, The Annals, uh, wrote about the burning of Rome not that many years later, which is also fascinating. If someone ever wants to say, well, ah, Jesus Christ never existed, just take him to this passage in Tacitus. Uh, no friend to the Christian, I might add. But he says this, that the fire burned for six days and seven nights, and it consumed over three-quarters of the city. Quote, Therefore, to stop the rumor that he, Nero, set Rome on fire, he falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the people commonly called Christians who were generally hated. Christ, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the region of Tiberias. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome itself. First, those who were arrested, who confessed they were Christians. Next, and on their information, a vast multitude was convicted, not on the charge and hear this clearly, not on the charge of burning the city, but of hating the human race. The charge was hate. I want to give you a historical principle here, maybe a little hard to follow, but I, I hope it will make sense. And that is this. Once the hater, or the haters, convinced the majority that another is actually the hater, the hated will be found guilty of hatred. This is our day. You need to know this. This is our day. Not the persecutions that they faced, but this principle is one that recurs over and over again throughout history. Understand that we who love will be and maybe some are now being charged with hate. It is the way. Understand that Tacitus was an unbeliever who didn't believe in the God of the Bible. He did not believe in Jesus Christ. He didn't believe anything about the gospel. Still, he wrote about the horrors that believers faced and that that ultimately is what stopped the persecutions. You know what stopped the persecutions? They were so vile and so cruel that the Roman citizenry, their hearts turned toward the Christians and said, this cannot continue. They became compassionate. In other words, the pagan Romans felt compassion for the Christians. And it stopped. Now, Paul knew that ministry can be dangerous and can feel futile. He knew that it was a dangerous world that he lived in. He was in Rome. He may have been in Philippi, but some argue that he was in Rome at this time. 
When we look into our world today and we see so much darkness and violence and hatred and poverty, it can be overwhelming to the reflective or sensitive soul. You know, we, we read in the news, you know, mothers can't even find baby formula, not to mention what's happening even now at this moment in Ukraine and other places that, for whatever reason, uh, we are unaware of. They don't, doesn't make our, doesn't make our radar, doesn't mean that evil is not happening. In most places, these evils are the result of the self-aggrandizement and greed of political leaders. Yet, it is from turning his teaching from false teachers, he rolls right over this and he says, do you know what the most important thing, the most significant thing you can do is pray for your leaders. And not the way David did and not the way the rabbi did. Pray for their salvation. Why? Why would Paul make a statement that, a, a, a skeptical and an unbelieving mind would say, well, of course, Paul was afraid this letter was going to fall into some ruler's hands and it would be used against him in his court case. So he wants to appear that he's saying something nice. That's nonsense. Years before, he had written the book of Romans and he speaks in great detail in chapter 13, if you care to read about this. This was a deeply held conviction that he had. It wasn't some manipulation or spur of the moment. Paul wrote, above all, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make supplication. Now, we don't use, or certainly I don't. You know, I, I generally will say, let us pray together. I don't recall ever saying, actually... This may be the first time I've ever said this publicly. Uh, let us supplicate together. I, we don't supplicate. Uh, it's not a word that we use. It's, it's, but nevertheless, it is essentially a prayer that a need be met. So when we pray for a need to be met, essentially that's what we're doing. He also uses the word intercessions. And that's a... Uh, word that speaks of prayer to, directed to God on behalf of another. So when you're praying specifically for another person, that is an intercession. And then he also says, uh, actually before that, he uses the word prayer, which is the way we would use it most generally. It's a broad understanding of how we communicate with God. And finally, he says, let all of these be essentially bathed in thanksgiving. Uh, give thanks as a regular part. And do this for all people. This is, he's being very specific here. While your text may read all men, in fact, I read that earlier, even in the ESV, there are words in the original language that mean men as in male, but there are also words just like we have that mean everybody. So these are those words. 
So it's let it read people or read humanity. Uh, that's what he's talking about here in terms of uh, praying. Now, Paul was, he was keenly aware of the deteriorating political atmosphere. And so he urged these prayers for the salvation of all men, but especially the rulers. Why? I, well, I don't, I believe he, he means that, that we can have a stable, non-interfering environment so that we can worship in, in peace. Essentially, it's to keep the peace. And that's a, not a minimum requirement, but it certainly makes our ability to gather, to worship, to live quiet and peaceable lives possible. And um, this doesn't exactly fit exactly, but even a bad government is better than anarchy. If you've ever seen anarchy, you understand that even bad government is better than that. It's an important thing that we have something to regulate uh, human behavior because uh, on the whole, we're not as nice or as good as we think we are. Now, this puts a bit of a challenge on us as 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 people uh, to take the time that we might otherwise be spending condemning politicians and praying for their souls. I, I want to be clear in saying this. I believe we have the right, the responsibility, even the obligation to criticize. We have no corresponding right to condemn. None. Not according to this text. I mean, remember when Paul wrote these words, there were no Christian leaders in politics to pray for. They didn't exist. They, I mean, the church hadn't been around long enough for people to uh, move up into levels of being rulers and politicians in such a way that they could change things. Certainly there were leaders in the church, but when Paul wrote this, they were all uh, pagans, every last one. And in verse 5, Paul brings uh, another idea to the front. Not only are we to, first of all, pray for all people because God desires their salvation, but especially the rulers, he talks about how that Prayer is effective for one reason. And that is because there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Read humanity there. Prayer is, is through the, the mediatorial role of Jesus Christ. He says that it's Jesus Christ who at the proper time gave himself as a ransom for all that allows prayer to happen in any kind of meaningful way. I love it whenever there's this, even the notion is referred to or even touched upon in any way that Jesus appeared at just the right time. And the fact that he appeared, that's not his main point here. His main point here is that Jesus coming 
to this earth, living the life that he lived, giving his life for sin, being resurrected is the undeniable proof that God desires that all people be saved. Not that they all will be, but his heart is toward salvation. I was listening some time ago to a preacher who said that, you know, as the salvation uh, boat goes by, you know, God is is grabbing uh, at shirts and pants and shoes and whatever he can get his hands on in order to put somebody in that boat. In other words, God's inclination is towards salvation, not against it. And this needs to be highlighted. In fact, these two verses here, 5 and 6, so important and critical to understand how you respond to people who say that and object to the message of Christianity. God wants to send people to hell. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. In fact, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Anyone who's in hell will determine that they made that estimation and that decision themselves. God does all things well. And that's not just for those of us who believe. He's also making a statement that's very restrictive, isn't it? There's only one God. One God, first of all, that's exclusive. It's not two and it's not 200. There's only one. And in fact, Jesus talked about that kind of exclusivity all the time. Especially in John, right? When he says, I am the way, the truth, uh, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People don't like that these days. No, there's, there's multiple ways, you know, just live a good life and you'll find one of these pathways. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that it is narrow. The way to destruction is, is uh, broad. Paul goes on in verse 7, talking about his role in the proclamation of the gospel. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles. So on four occasions in the New Testament, Paul says, I'm not lying. And it's a kind of an unusual thing to note. I mean, why would you say that? Are we to infer that the rest of the time that he's speaking, he's lying? Of course not. I mean, that's, that's nonsense. What it means is, in the same way that, that we would tell somebody in a conversation, you know, this is serious, or I'm being serious, it's not that I'm implying that the... Previous words that I spoke were joking. I want you to hear this. That's all Paul was doing. People were calling him a liar. And he was telling Timothy and through Timothy publicly to the church that this was, was not true. He uses three separate titles to address himself. He's, he calls himself an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher. I won't spend any time on apostle. We've talked about that before, just to say that I don't believe that there are apostles uh, in this time the same way that there were in the time of uh, the first century. And then also another thing, there's a difficulty 
that many people have in understanding what's the difference between preaching and teaching. And I don't know if I'll make that any clearer here now or not, but there is a difference. Most people use them interchangeably, but they are not the same. Uh, So I define preaching as the exhortation, the proclamation of biblical and theological truth designed to stir the heart. Teaching, by contrast, is explanation, explication, if you like big words, of biblical and theological truth designed to stir the mind. It's not that one is exclusive of the other, but the intent is somewhat different. I'm standing up here. I'm, this is a monologue. There is a silent dialogue that's going on, But when you're teaching, it should be an actual dialogue that's happening. Teaching occurs in a dialogue. Uh, Anyone who teaches and you remain silent, mm, it's probably not the best. There needs to be a dialogue that's, that's happening, that's going on. Both rightly handle theology, but the mode is different. And then in verse 8, he writes, I desire then that in every place that men read humanity should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, in the early church, yes, the posture was to look up and to uh, uh, hold the hands, palm up towards heaven. I don't think what Paul is driving at is posture, although I do delight in seeing different postures. I'm not one that's giving to, I mean, the most I'll do is tap the front of the pew, you know, Maybe you have more expressive posture than that, and I think that's a wonderful thing, but the issue is not the posture. The issue is the purity. The issue is not the hands, but the issue is the holy. Jesus said when you come into the presence of God and you know you've done something against a brother or a sister, or for that matter, in Matthew and, and chapter 5, If you know somebody's got something against you, stop, you know, like a fire, stop, drop, and roll. In other words, don't continue. Stop. Make it right. Then come back. Jesus Christ is more interested in your heart than how you perform in worship or what you do. Leave it. Get it right. God desires salvation and reconciliation more than he does. We learned that from David. You don't desire sacrifice. A broken and a contrite spirit are the sacrifices. So what does he mean then when he says lifting holy hands? And that is simply that we are to be set apart for God. Understand this. Separate these two words in your mind forever if you have not done so already. Holy and perfect do not go together unless we're in glory. Once we're in glory, they will. Right now, uh, they don't go together. It means consecrated. That is saved, set apart for God's use God wants to hear from you as his child. First of all, pray, he says. No matter, listen, no matter how little and no matter how big, 
make talking to him a priority. Make praying for our leaders a priority. Ray Stevens pointed out something by explaining how he was his own grandpa. In the economy of God, and I wish I had time to flesh this out more, but you'll understand it because it's a simple, uncomplicated comment. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Not one. Not a single one. You are a child of God or you are not related to Him. The only relationship that we have with God is as a child of God and that through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Father, we we look to You Lord, perhaps it's to correct an understanding or an attitude. Perhaps it's to see ourselves in somewhat a different way. Lord, I know that sometimes my prayers are not that generous. Sometimes, in fact, I lean more toward David. And in that, Lord, it does seem that the grace that you brought when you came to this earth should be extended to all. does not mean we shut down our minds. does not mean that we do not do right. But our hearts need to be turned in such a way that we're looking for peaceable, holy lives and the salvation of mankind. Lord, I pray that those who do not know you would seize a hold of your Son, Jesus Christ. And this day, like no other, would join with the rest of the saints in glory one day, singing a thousand hallelujahs. Through Christ our Lord, amen.